Good afternoon, everyone. First of all, I just want to thank uh, the organizers of OIS from, on behalf of our panel. We're honored to be here, honored that after all this time, these years and looking at ocular surface disease, that we're having a really robust discussion today. I'm thankful that all of the, our industry partners have continued to push the envelope in the ocular surface arena, because without you, we wouldn't have options for our patients, and we heard so many great things today. So if I could have a round of applause for all of our earlier presenters in ocular surface disease for all the great things that they're doing. Don't be shy. All right, we are running a little shy on time. Some of our earlier panelists maybe chatted a little bit too much. So the 100 minutes for next year, Paul, you're going to have to be really careful with. You can tell that to Todd. <laughs> Competition with disease and others. All right, panel, um, if you could say your name, um, just so everyone's aware of who you are or your practice location, and something that really impressed you about last year or something that changed your practice in ocular surface disease. Go ahead, Doug. Yeah, I'm Doug DeVries, and uh, I practice in Sparks, Nevada, Eye Care Associates in Nevada, that is a uh, surgical referral practice that I uh, co-founded uh, 31 years ago. Uh, yeah, last year, I, I really saw some changes happening, and I think that, you know, when we take a look at all the innovations and what industry is doing right now and how, they're, uh, how you folks are pursuing different avenues and looking at just multiple approaches to take care of the very complex ocular surface disease, that's good, but I think what is better and optimistic for everybody actually formulating and, and creating these is I'm seeing a sea change now within our profession. And I'm seeing uh, when I'm presenting at uh, CE meetings and symposiums, I'm seeing the questions now and the enthusiasm from our profession that they'd like to know dialogues that we're using. They want key phrases. They want implementation uh, strategies to actually start making things happen. And we've been fighting this battle for a long, long time, trying to get implementation. And right now, I, what I see is you know, the idea that we're looking into new areas and, and that our colleagues are embracing it. I mean, we're looking at the uh, mechanical aspects of the, uh, of the eyelid. We're looking at different areas, looking at incomplete lid seal. We're looking at uh, mechanical dry eye, things like that. But what I'm finding is the reception is totally different now than it was just a few years ago. It's true, very much. And you have really focused, moved towards that in your practice. I know that. Selena? Yes, so Selena McGee, I'm in private practice in Oklahoma, practicing for the last 20 years. And, you know, what I've seen in the last few years really are new categories and just a different way to think. And I think making dry eye disease more accessible, both to patients, practitioners, all of us in this together, because we have this is a really complicated disease. It's multifactorial, but I see a lot of really great education around starting with the outside with the lids and then working our way in to the cornea and how all of those play together and working on simplifying our messaging so that this disease state becomes more accessible to all of the other 60,000 ECPs in the country. So for me, that's like really exciting. Then when you look at, we have you know three new drugs just this year, can we make this a more targeted approach? How do we simplify this for our colleagues outside of this room who aren't sitting here with us? So I think we're all in this together doing that. And that's what I've seen over the last you know, several years and trying to figure out how to crack that nut that we've been trying to crack for 20 years at this point. 
All right. Now, Jeff, you had a big year last year, and I want you to kind of come at this from the uh, concept of what you've seen in the process of getting something approved and then what happens on the other side and how that impacts what, what these two have said previously. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's, if we look back at, um, I spent a vast majority of my career in retina and we had these very small incremental changes until we got the anti-VEGF therapy. And then we had this massive change in the way that we treated disease. And I, what I will say is I think that's where we're at with ocular surface disease. We're making these um, small changes in the way that we are looking at different mechanisms of action. And I think it's it's only a matter of time until we have that massive uplift in some therapy that's going to completely change the way we look at ocular surface disease. And for us, you know, last year was obviously a, a great year, but I think more importantly is when we look at the way we approach these things, and I think it was mentioned before, what's really exciting is we're coming at it from so many different angles. And so I do think this is a disease where you need oral, nasal, ocular devices, drugs, biologics, gene therapy, all of those things need to be brought to bear until we um, can actually make some meaningful movement forward. And I think it's happening right now. And for us, you know, we learned a lot last year. We launched the first nasal spray in the, in the, you know, optometric, uh, ophthalmic eye care space. It's a, it's a, difficult thing to do. It's not as easy as giving you another drop that you're used to every day. Um, and there's a little bit of um, education that goes along with that. But I will say this, I, I don't think that's the last time we're going to see an injection, a new device and a new way of delivering. So we should all get used to sort of adopting and, and embracing that. Thanks. And last but not least, Leslie. Well, I want to first say I'm impressed that we sat in order of this picture and we didn't even talk about that before. <laughs> we are really that good. So I'm Leslie O'Dell. I actually, um, in the past three years, have um, led uh, a new um, type of medical optometry. And so my clinic, Medical Optometry America, was the first of now three locations in Pennsylvania focusing on medical eye care independent of retail altogether. So we're managing all things ocular disease. And um, it's been really exciting just to see where optometry is headed in the future um, and also to share patients among my profession, right? So I'm referring to my colleagues for different refractive needs and they're referring to me for different ocular disease needs. What I think has been, you know, just really exciting over not this year for me, but really for me the past 15 years is just that other people care about dry eye disease and ocular surface disease now. Um, and it, you know, finding companies and industry partners that are helping us in the lanes find unmet needs for our patients. So this year, I feel like the, for me, in my clinic was kind of on simplifying my diagnostic, like Selena was mentioning, and I've, I have some great tools to do that. So now I have my patients in these like waiting lanes for when the technologies get approved for this year. Um, so I'm just really excited to be in a position where disease management is hopefully going to continue to get easier for my patients. So, Leslie, you just said that you kind of have your patients in different lanes as you're getting ready for new products to be launched. What excites you about what we just heard? Let's just say that everything that we just heard happens. What's going to excite you the most 
to incorporate into your language. Well, I will be a broken record because I said this a few years ago, but, um, you know, demodex blepharitis has been a long time, almost like thorn in my side for managing patients. We have treatments that are not perfect in, in, you know, any way. And so it's been really exciting to see the evolution of TPO3 and Tarsus get um, education around demodex blepharitis. I think it was really eye-opening to see the numbers of you know, what percent of patients with demodex blepharitis are walking through our clinics. I've used that over the course of the past several months when I talk to patients. I just said it yesterday when a patient said, you know, how common is this? And I can now say, well, actually about six out of 10 patients will be here for this problem. So that is really exciting. I also am really excited just about these new diagnostic platforms, things as easy as this myverter and being able to image upper glands. Um, that's going to simplify what we're doing. Um, and we used to think that the upper glands mirrored the bottom glands, but um, they really don't do that all the time. And I think imaging both lids is going to be very impactful for patients. Um, and what Versailles has got going with um, all these different ways of looking at the tiers and how we're going to be able to really tailor treatments for patients, I think is, is really going to, again, make the job easier for the doctor and give the patients more options to choose from. Doug, how about you? Well, um like Leslie, I think that as we've been looking at a problem like demodex blepharitis for such a long time, and uh, I think Aziz did a really nice job describing it, it's just visual. I mean, it's so easy to make that determination. And I think that, you know, the more we can solve different pieces of the puzzle, uh, I think that's really good. But what I also like is, you know, we're taking similar molecules that we've used before and we're repurposing and not repurposing, but we're actually utilizing with different mechanisms of delivery, showing just that we can have incredible results with lower concentrations. And so I think when we look in those areas too, I think that's really exciting for, uh, you know, what it, what it holds for the treatment and uh, really what we need to do to get more, uh, more doctors and eye care providers uh, treated in general is just make it a little simpler. Mm -hmm. Don't we all know that? Selena, um, if you, you were taking some notes during yeah. the sessions, what excited you about that? You know, a couple of things stood out. So when you look at clinical endpoints, we've traditionally always used Shermers. Well, no doctor actually does that in clinic. So when you look at clinical endpoints, and I see two two studies that look at redness, all of our patients experience redness and they don't really know what that means. And so to me, like that's exciting because it's going to be a different way to approach and talk with our patients and then offer a solution to help them with their everyday life. Whereas historically, I think some of the, the metrics that we've used like Shermer's, they don't really understand that. So I think that's one thing. And then looking at just, we have some really truly novel molecules that we've never had that to Todd's point, we're starting outside and working in. And so the novelty of taking a new molecule that's completely going to be different in class and then looking at onset of action, I think is going to be really exciting too, when you can see some things happening within minutes, you know, and that goes back to even with Veriniclin, especially you've got onset of action within first measured clinical endpoint at five minutes. But, you know, some of these are going to be within that time and some are within two weeks. And so all of those pieces honestly are, are really exciting. Jeff, you held back a little bit when talking about Viatris. I do okay? All right. I would say Viatris. So I'm, I'm going to actually say Viatris, everyone. Put that in your brain because once you hear it wrong, you kind of can't unhear it. <laughs> At any rate, um, you hold back in talking about your pipeline in the ocular surface area a little bit. 
briefly mentioned it, but is there anything else you'd like to add about what you see is the future um, related to some of that work? Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, a it's it's really exciting to see everything that people are working on here. But we we obviously are not stopping looking at ocular surface disease. So, you know. People will often say, well, hey, you have this commercial product, Tiervaya. You know, the way we, we sort of look and the way I look at Tiervaya is uh, it, it produces natural tears, but there's still more to be said for ocular surface disease. And so, there, you know, we look at it as a, a product that's complementary to many things that are out there. Uh, we look at what can we put into that additional tear film that we're putting onto the ocular surface to sort of uh, increase the efficacy uh, of the product. And so we continue to look at dry eye products. It's not like we're done looking at ocular surface disease. And I think the things that excite us the most are things that are closest to the biology. And so we're, we've, we've sort of drifted away from um, the small molecule side. We've sort of looked more towards things like proteins and things that are closer to mimic the biology of the human tear film. But also we we've spent a lot of time in really trying to understand what's in the tear film. So we've run cytokine panels uh, all through the year last year. Those presentations and publications will be coming out soon just to try and understand what exactly is in the tear film and what's the underlying etiology of what's going on there. Because I think it, we, we still don't know exactly what's happening there. There's still a lot of room for research. And so I think meetings like this where we can um, talk about innovation, um, I, don't, I don't think we can also lose sight of the fact that there's just so much about the disease states that we don't understand still. Yeah, agreed. Well, a couple of things I thought were interesting. If I think about it from the standpoint of a student and what maybe a student doesn't know, I'm pretty sure that maybe they don't know about Nanodropper. And I think that's pretty mm -hmm. cool. So uh, if you have a student in your practice and you're using it, make sure you let them know. And secondly, if you know me, you know I love the meibomian glands. So anything that can move MGD further in its connection to the ocular surface and ocular surface disease. So these things are linked. And so, as you said, Jeff, understanding that mechanism about how they're all linked so that we can better define patients for clinical trials, quite honestly. All right, I wanna move in our last, you know, about 10 minutes, um, this part I think is really interesting because we just heard a lot about a lot of great things individually, but we don't often think about how they function together in helping our patients. So we learn about a great widget. And so I wanted to ask each of the panelists to talk a little bit about how widgets fit into their decision-making process in the ocular surface. So, you know, what impacts, like, when you take a brand-new dry patient, um, you know, what happens in your mind? How do you set that up in the practice? And each of you kind of comes from a, a different perspective in your practice. So, Doug, if a brand-new dry patient but a previous dry patient comes to you, how do you how do you think about that maybe differently from other patients? Well, I think about it uh, diagnostically, especially the brand new patient. I, I want to uh, get point of care testing. Uh, and if we've uh, looked at that patient and they have a certain level of a, a questionnaire that is positive, uh, then point of care testing, looking at inflammation, looking at osmolarity, and what I consider an incredibly vital uh, point of care test that's not actually billed as a point of care test is mybography. And I think I like to... Uh, well, what I do is I set the groundwork and tell the patient that it's based on inflammation and then it's based on the damage that the inflammation has caused. And at that point, we try to identify as many inflammatory uh, aspects of, you know, what they're doing, drugs, age, uh, gender, 
And then we look at what we can take care of. And I'll tell the patient initially when we start treatment, we're gonna take care of the acute phase of this right away by looking at the inflammation, but then we're gonna have to deal with some of the chronic things that are continuing to go on and the damage that has been accomplished. And that's why, you know, I then gravitate towards some of the lid procedures. And so, you know, with what we saw presented today and some of the new, you know, both being able to image better, being able to test better, be able to get more specificity, uh, I, I think that that is going to help drive at least clinically my decision-making. And then the return patient, really, it's no different. I'm updating them on what I told them in the stage that I set in the very beginning. And that these are the different uh, aspects that are that are causing the uh, inflammation. That And some we can control, some we can't control. And we're going to control the ones we can. We're going to lower the ones we that we can do. We're going to do procedures to take care of some of that obstruction. Uh, you know, having new drugs that will aid in, uh, you know, getting more myobum there and taking care of that, I think is very exciting also. But when, when I take a look at my approach, it's very similar on both the return patient and the new patient. That is first do some education, explain it. And then when I'm testing them and I'm uh, keeping them updated where they are uh, in the progress and where we have to shift gears. So you mentioned point of care tests and surveys, and I'm imagining your staff is performing those for you. Yes. Um, could I have the panel comment on that? How many of those, what are you doing at the intake and what is your staff doing? What do you have the expectation of in your flow? My team does all of it. Describe that. Describe that a little bit. So, um, I mean, they, they do a speed questionnaire. They have the patient do that either prior to even coming into the clinic, it's electronically sent to them. And then they grade it for me before I ever walk in. And then if we have a six or more on their speed, that's indicative that we have an issue with symptoms. So then we're doing point of care testing. They've got standing orders to do osmolarity and MMP9 testing. So I have all of that plus their myography before I ever walk into the room. Leslie? That, that's actually exactly how we do it. Um, I think that having that just sets you up for success. You don't have a lot of unknowns or you don't have the patient that's going to tell you that problem when you're, you know, getting ready to leave the room because then you don't have the time to devote or you have to, you know, give the time to devote rather and disrupt, you know, the rest of your flow. I think that with, for, for me, um, Oh, and maybe I'm not supposed to answer about the other question, but I was going to do that if that's okay. I was going to say for me, um, that new dry eye patient that's been to other providers is always a challenge um, that I really look forward to in my week and in my day um, because it's like solving some unsolved mystery, right? And I feel like if I get it right, this is a patient for life and um, it makes me really proud of myself. But the things that I ask, um, I really do a lot of listening that day and I learned from Paul, you know, I ask these two key questions, which is of all the symptoms on the survey that you just told me, what's the one that matters most to you today or most of the days? And when is it happening? And when I hear the answer to those two questions, it helps guide my exam um, based on those symptoms, whether I think it could be a lid issue or something along those lines. The other thing I do is really spend time educating patients. And a lot of the presenters today talked about the problem, which is chronic and progressive. But if your patient was never told that by another doctor, they think that maybe what you're giving them is an easy fix. So I often, you know, want to reset their um, 
expectations for their therapy and let them know all of it's a journey and we're going to get to the end. It just might not happen as fast as you think it should. And I think that idea of like durability in what we're doing and um, this ELM technology and, and just how we tell a patient to do a warm compress and we assume it's doing something, which has long since been disproven. It's, it's good to have technologies that are really well thought of that are going to give our patients at home treatments that continue what we're doing in the office and give them that, that durability. So whether it's a new medication or, you know, something they're doing at home, I think that's going to just reinforce the chronicity of the disease for them. Selena, did you have a comment? I, well, I think one of the gaps that we all have, because, you know, all of us are doing the exact same in same thing in clinic, but so many of our colleagues are not. And I think it's because they don't know what to do with the data. So for every person sitting in this room at this moment, at the end of the day, we have to teach why we're doing it, what the data means, and is it really going to change behavior? And if we don't do that, it won't matter what kind of technology we have and how amazing these things are. That to me is like the missing piece of what we're all trying to accomplish. So I really think we have to, to Leslie's point, talk about why. And that's exactly what Doug said, you know, looking at here's why we're doing this and here's why this matters. We have to connect those dots of here's what we see sign wise. Here's how we connect it here to your symptoms. This test reinforces that or tells me this is the path I'm going to go down and here's the treatment for it. If we get that right, look out. <laughs> so from what I'm hearing, though, there's a, a significant amount of time with the patient. How much time do you think you spend with that new dry patient having education? I know some of it happens simultaneously, but mm -hmm. are you using a lot of chair time? You know, a, a lot of it depends on if it's that patient that has been previously treated multiple times and hasn't had success, mm -hmm. they're probably going to take a little bit more time than somebody who is a naive patient that's coming that you're treating for the first time. Uh, because then you can pretty much uh, succinctly lay it out, lay out what you're, you're finding and what your point of care tests have been and then move on from there. For the patient who has uh, been treated multiple times and had failures, I think those are the patients that are a little bit more time consuming. But in a, in a new dry patient, I can spend about seven to 10 minutes and really kind of wrap things up. And then my technicians will go over the, uh, the treatment that we're starting. Uh, but on the patient that has multiple failures, they're definitely going to be more time consuming, more in the uh, probably 12 to 15 minute range. You agree, Leslie? I do. And I think that if you do what he said, like, uh, and I've been doing this slowly in my clinic, offload to um, like a dry eye coordinator or something and have them come back in and reinforce how they're using something or treatment that you're recommending. It really does free up your time to go see another patient. So I would say seven to, to 15 minutes is more than adequate for the doctor time. Mm -hmm. All right, this is a pop quiz question that you didn't know but that was coming, starting with Jeff. Sorry, Jeff. No. I know. <laughs> How important is it in the future, currently or in the future, to have a diagnostic test that sort of works with a treatment, paired with a treatment, or it might not be a diagnostic test, it might be a follow-up test with a particular treatment, and where are we with that? How close? Yeah. So, I... I think it's incredibly important. I, if you look at the way that the FDA looks at companion diagnostic tests across medicine, forget, forget eye care, just look across medicine. You know, in oncology, it's almost needed. 
um, in other areas of medicine like immunology they're often used but I also think if we look at the ecosystem and just the way the way we deliver eye care here in the United States you have ophthalmology you have optometry you have all these subspecialties and sometimes with delivering certain therapies there may be limitations we saw some limitations in certain states on what optometry can do there's no limitations on diagnostics so when we think about how we bring therapies to the table i think it's not only the concept of being able to measure something that we can follow but it's also think about the business aspect of it as well which is really important and then lastly i'll, I'll just say you know we talked about oct a little bit up here and what i would say is i lived through launching lucentis and and without lucentis and oct together that would have never happened because now you have a picture that you can sit down and show the patient and say, look, here's how you change. And it's very quick for a patient to see over time how their OCT is changing. They can pick up fluid on their own. And if we can have companion diagnostics for therapies that we can show the patient their progress or their lack of progress because they're not compliant, I think that's critical to deliver care. So you didn't know you were going to do so well on that question, huh? I hadn't thought about the other systemic conditions, too. Um, any of you want to comment on that in our last final moments? Uh, patients love metrics. And if you can support uh, the treatment and their movement with metrics, uh, they really do. I mean, you think about a glaucoma patient. The very first thing they say as soon as you remove the, uh, the tonometer is, what's my pressure? And I found that, that uh, dry patients are very much like that, having been involved with osmolarity in the early stages where we actually had to have them sign an ABN and they would pay for that test. When they came back and they said, aren't we going to do that test again? And here was a test that they were going to pay for. And so it really realized the value of patients having metrics that actually followed their treatment and the feedback that we could give them. Because as we know now, more and more with the neurotrophic aspect, sometimes patients don't feel what we see. So if we can test them, we can reassure them. I think that leads to a uh, continued treatment and not the dropout and greater success. Lena and Leslie? Agree. And we're out of time. I know we're out of time. <laughs> All right, can I have a round of applause for my expert panel? <laughs>